0: Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 27, 2 Chronicles chapter 27. Uh, while you turn there, I do want to uh, emphasize again, be sure if you started attending in the past year or if you made any changes to your information, get one of those member update. Uh, we say member, you don't have to be a member if you're, if you're hanging around, amen. Some of us are like bad pennies, amen. We just hang around and uh, I'm glad Fred picked up that I was talking about him. Uh, but they but they, they, look like that right there. And so uh, if you can just grab one of those and fill them out, we'd love to have your information. And uh, and if you want to be a part of that Christmas card thing, uh, there's also a paper back there that you can uh, sign up, a little sign-up sheet. But one is not the other, all right? So if you've not filled one of those out, we still don't have your information. And uh, on that paper for the Christmas card sign up, uh, you don't have to put address or anything like that. That's why we do the little boxes so that uh, you don't have to. I'm a firm believer in giving the government as little money as possible. Amen. And so we want to try to save you on postage, and uh, that'll be a good way to do that. So be sure and attend to those two things. Hasn't the Lord been good to us? Man, I'm excited about this next week, excited about what God is going to do in our hearts and our lives. What an opportunity this is, to have a man of God come and to preach to us for three nights and and uh, really just soak up the Word of God. I'm excited about what God's going to do. I trust that you are as well, and I trust that you'll not take this opportunity for granted. I also want to ask you, be sure you're faithful this week. Uh, If you look around the room, you'll notice a lot of faces not here. There's a lot of sickness going around. Uh, And so, especially if you got little kids... Kids are gross. I say this all the time. Little kids are gross. Um, You know, they lick everything. They sneeze into your food and all that. So a lot of these families with young kids especially are battling sickness right now. Uh, If you've got enough kids, it just makes laps in your house. And so uh, one of the ways you can help us this week, be in your place. Be faithful and uh, look for God to do something great this week. Second Chronicles chapter number 27. We're going to read the whole chapter which is only nine verses, amen, so don't get too discouraged this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 27, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. This is recording the uh, reign of Jotham, who is the king of Judah. This is when the uh, land of Israel was divided into the northern tribes, of uh, the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, uh, which were the kingdom of Judah. And Jotham, he is the king over Judah. The Bible says in verse number 1, Jotham was twenty and five years old when he began to reign. And he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did. Howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. He built the high gate of the house of the Lord, and on the wall of Ophel he built much." Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forests he built castles and towers. He fought also with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. And the children of Ammon gave him the same year an hundred talents of silver, and ten thousand measures of wheat, and ten thousand of barley. So much did the children of Ammon pay unto him, both the second year and the third. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, lo, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 5 and 20 years old when he began to reign and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And Jotham slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and Ahaz his son reigned in his stead. Let's stop and pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, thank you that it's true. Lord, we've come to draw from pure waters this morning. Uh, We've come to an infallible, inerrant, inspired book that has been perfectly, impeccably preserved such that as we approach it, we don't have to wonder what's the words of man and the words of God. But we can have confidence that we hold your word this morning. Help us to treat it with that reverence, Lord, that it so deserves and help us, Lord, to open our hearts to the truth of it and may Christ be magnified through our obedience. I pray for the heart of each person here. Lord, I don't know the contents or the character of their hearts, but Lord, you do. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would do that which only he can do in taking the word of God and applying it in the appropriate way. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done and will do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've read this morning about the reign of this young man by the name of Jotham. He was not the youngest nor the oldest king ever to reign. He was not the shortest nor the longest. But there is a statement made about his life that draws my interest. And you may have noticed it right away in the reading. It's in verse number 6. The Bible says this about this young man Jotham. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. We'll preach to you on this thought this morning. He prepared his ways before the Lord. Or if you want a more literal title to the truth we're wanting to communicate, it's this thought, setting yourself up for spiritual success. One of the things you'll find to be true if you study the lives of great men is that they will all uniformly, resoundingly say that their life is not the product of happenstance, that the things that they've achieved they did not stumble into, but rather through careful discipline and preparation they accomplished great things in their life. And you know, that truth applies even for the life of the believer. I think sometimes we like to think that God was just dealing out lives and He dealt some people better ones than other ones. I think sometimes we like to think that he was dealing out character and dealt some people more than he dealt others. But I promise you this, when you look at people who seem to be getting the job done in their spiritual life, what I mean by that is they're faithful to the Lord, they're serving God, God is evident in their life. You can see the power of God in and on them and they're achieving great things for God. I will guarantee you this, it did not happen overnight and it did not happen by accident. What you're seeing is the product of people that have prepared their ways before the Lord and they have set themselves up for spiritual success. I heard a preacher talking the other day about men and and manhood and and masculinity and he made the comment, he said, you know, some people struggle to be the men that God called them to be uh, because they were not set up to be that way. They didn't have the right dad or they didn't have the right life circumstances I'd have you know this this morning. Listen, whatever we are in the Lord, we are that in the Lord because we choose to be that in the Lord. We're not that way because we were given a raw deal. We're not that way because uh, we were uh, given the short straw. We have chosen the path. That we walk. Now I'm not I'm not blind to the fact that some people are given advantages. I was blessed in growing up in a godly home, but I'll have you know, there's people twice the Christian than I'll ever be that grew up in a drunkard's home. I, I was raised with a Christian education. I was blessed to be able to raise uh, be raised in a Christian school. I don't know if it made me real smart, but it kept me out of a lot of trouble. Amen. And uh, I was raised in a Christian school. And uh, I'm thankful for that. I bless the Lord for that. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But there's young people that grew up in rotten situations that have gone on to do great and mighty things for God. And what we do for God is not predetermined by our circumstances. It's not dialed into our DNA. But it is a product of the choices that we make day by day. To believe anything less than that, is to seek to absolve ourselves of the responsibility of our life and to avoid the choices that we are daily faced with. The reason Jotham was successful, I mean, hear it right from the lips of the Holy Ghost, it wasn't because he had a godly father, though he did. And it wasn't because he was in the southern kingdom, which was more godly, though it was. And it wasn't because he was in Jerusalem, which is the city of God, though it is. But rather, it's because he prepared his ways before the Lord. I think about this upcoming series of meetings that we're having over the next three days. And I, I often think this as a pastor, I wonder what people expect out of them. And now what I mean by that is not do they expect great attendance. It's not do they expect the singing will be on. It's not do they think people will run the aisles and run laps carrying the Christian flag or whatever. Uh, but I think to myself, I wonder what people's goal is. You're coming to these meetings. I know you are. The Lord already told me every one of you is going to be there for every night of the meeting you are come to these meetings over these next three nights, what are you expecting out of it? Are you expecting God to do anything in your life? I'll tell you, if you're not expecting it, it probably won't happen. And that's not to suggest that what happens is the product of our positive thinking, but it is to say, if you don't prepare yourself for these meetings spiritually, then you're probably not going to get very much out of them. But I promise you this, if you'll prepare your heart for what God seeks to do, You'll be amazed at what God can do in just three nights of meetings. And Jotham is an example of this truth. I have a very simple message this morning. I want you to notice three areas of his life that he prepared his ways before the Lord. And I wonder, with your life and mine, are we preparing our ways before the Lord? Have you ever met... I'm going to get to preaching here in just a moment. Be patient with me. I I got too much to say to preach, amen? So I'll I'll preach here in a moment. You ever met somebody that couldn't figure out why their life was a mess? But everybody else could. I've dealt with this for years. When people come to preach, I just don't know what's happening. I look at them and say, "Well, I know what's happening. You're never in church. You never have your family in church. You're not serving the Lord. You're not doing anything with your life. You don't tithe. You don't. You don't. You don't try to give of your life to the Lord in any way." And and then you're shocked when your life is not uh, is not whole and intact. Well, listen, hey, God didn't leave us in the dark. He showed us how to live. And oftentimes, well, preacher, I just don't know. I don't know where it all went wrong. I've sat with people whose homes were broken into a thousand pieces. Say, so I don't know where it went wrong. And, you know, it's hard sometimes. You want to be, you want to be compassionate and you want to be kind and it just ain't in me to do that. And, but, but, you know, you want to look at them and say, I'm not trying to be cruel, but I know and you should know how you got to this place because of the pattern of your life. And Jotham picked up ...on this truth that if his life was going to be anything, it was going to be that deliberately so. And if your life's going to be something for God, you're going to have to purpose in your heart that it will be. And you're going to have to take the proper steps that are necessary. So Jotham gives us a pattern of this truth. I want you to notice in nine short verses, the Holy Ghost says really pretty much everything there is to say about his life... But in that, it reveals to us why he was successful. I want you to notice verse number 2 with me. The Bible says this, He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did. Howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. I want to say number 1 this morning, part of the reason he was mighty in the Lord, part of the reason he was a spiritual success was because he was prepared in the area of wisdom. He learned the truths that God wanted him to learn. One of the greatest things you can ever be in your life is teachable. There are so many people whose life is so much harder than it needs to be because they can't find the humility to be teachable. They must always have the upper hand. They must always claim to have infinite knowledge. And they cannot accept the reality that there ain't nobody that knows everything. We all can learn something in our Christian walk. Notice two things here. Notice one, the parent that he learned from. The Bible says this, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. How did he know to do that? Mankind's not born with some ingrained knowledge of what is, is necessarily the will and way of God. We may know fundamentally right from wrong, but how did he know how to live? Well, it tells us how he knew. The Bible says this, he did according to all that his father Uzziah did. Uzziah is a very interesting man in Scripture. And he, like many of the kings of Israel and Judah, or Judah in particular, his life was in some ways a mixed bag of long seasons of faithfulness and spiritual commitment that is sadly stained with moments and lapses of disobedience. But when you study the life of Uzziah, you'll find that the very things that show up in Jotham's life were the very things that... Were in Uzziah's life. Remember, Jotham is 25 years old when he begins to reign. He would have seen, no doubt, well over a decade of his father's reign and been old enough to appreciate and be aware of what had transpired. He had grown up with all the stories. The the, the chapter prior to this tells us about the types of things. That happened. The Bible says this about Uzziah, that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Let me pause and say this as fathers. One of the greatest things you can do is serve God in front of your kids. They need to see the example of you serving God. And one of the common threads you'll find throughout this chronology of kings is that very often if there was a man that did wickedly, his kids did wickedly too. Very often if there was a man that did righteously, his kids did righteously too. There are obviously exceptions to that, else it would have never changed. But as a general rule, hey listen, children, follow the examples that are set before him. And so Jotham did the same thing. He, his father Uziah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. And listen to the, some of the things that he did. The Bible says he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. You think Jotham didn't notice that? The Bible says he went forth and warred against the Philistines and break down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod, and built cities about Ashdod, and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines, and against the Arabians that dwelt in Jerbaal, and the Mahunims and the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah, and his name spread abroad, even to the entering in of Egypt, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. Sounds a lot like what Jotham did. He saw in his daddy someone that would fight For righteousness. He saw in his father, not somebody that was was passive, not somebody that was effeminate, but somebody that was willing to suit up in the armor of God and go and fight the enemies of God. He had seen that his father was a warrior that would stand for God. And he learned to be a warrior just the same. Verse number 9 says this of chapter 26, Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. Wonder where Jotham learned to invest in building the things of God. He learned it from his father Uzziah. And then verse 10 says this about Uzziah. He built towers in the desert, kind of like building forts in the wilderness, kind of like building castles in the forest like Jotham did. The Bible says he did many wells, for he had much cattle both in the low country. Now, you didn't know he went to South Carolina, did you? Both in the low country... And in the plains, husbandmen also, and vine dressers in the mountains, and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. We can stop there, but you could spend more time. You could keep going through the life of Uzziah. And here's what Jotham learned. He learned there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. If I can find somebody that's godly, that's done it before me, and learn from their life, then I will be that much further ahead. I was joking with my wife the other day. We was talking about my study at the house, and I've got hundreds, maybe over a thousand books in my study uh most of them are useless (laughs) i'm I'm being honest with you i've got a bible and that's what i spend most of my time in is that bible but i was joking with her i said you know so much that stuff's digital anymore if i didn't know that one day google was going to turn the lights off on all of us i'd just get rid of all those physical copies and uh you know you you mark her down one day that they won't burn books they'll just delete books and uh so i'm keeping my physical copies you can't have them but But, you know, I told her, I said, you know, it's funny. I could probably consolidate everything down to two bookshelves and get rid of just hundreds of those books because I have them digitally. I have access to them. It'd be a lot less clutter. But, you know, why does a pastor accrue a big library of of, of books? Why do we do that? Well, partially people give them to us. They're very gracious in that way. But part of the reason is this, too. Why would we go and try to learn by experience that which we can learn by example? You know this is true because you taught it to your kids, you taught your kids, follow my follow my wisdom, follow my counsel, follow my advice. And hopefully you could say, follow my example. And how it pained your heart when you saw your kids make the very same mistakes that you made. It broke your heart to think, why are they choosing the hard path? But how many times does our Heavenly Father look down at us and say, why are you choosing the hard path? Why won't you look at the people around you and learn from their mistakes and learn from their successes? And it'll be a great day in your spiritual life when you purpose that you're going to begin to seek out and find godly people who have got the job done, who have lived for God and say, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? What did you change? What did you prioritize? in your life. I was talking to a friend the other day about some speeches that you'll see people give at graduations and at various events, and they'll go viral is what they call it. I'm sick of viral things. In every capacity of life, I'm sick of viral things. And you know, they'll give advice, and oftentimes it's nebulous, it's abstract, oftentimes it's not really rooted in anything. And a friend of mine was talking, he said, why don't they just tell me like Important things in life, like, you know, and he was joking, he said, don't tell me how to make my bed, tell me what stocks to invest in, you know. And he was like, don't tell me this, you know, tell me what choices to make in life. And I fear that sometimes we have conditioned ourselves as Christians to just wanting the most abstract, generic advice and counsel given to us. We don't want people to really get explicit with our life. We take offense at it. We take umbrance at it. We get scandalized by it when somebody looks at us and says, hey, This is a mistake that you're making. Please don't make that mistake. But if you bow up and if you puff up, if you say, no, I'm not going to listen to any advice that's given to me, I promise you, your life is going to be a thousand times harder than it has to be. So many of the people that you and I could point to and could say, look what a wreck their life is, they were not ignorant or didn't have to be concerning the choices they were making. All around them, they were surrounded with people that loved them that were saying, Please don't go that direction. Please don't go that way. Any of y'all ever raised teenagers? You know what I'm talking about. Please don't go that direction. Please don't go that way. And yet they refuse to listen. I see the parent that he learned from. But notice number two. The Bible says this in in verse number two. It, It sort of ends this way. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did. And then it makes two statements that are very interesting. It says, how be it? he entered not into the temple of the Lord. And the people did yet corruptly. Now that's interesting. If you read that and don't understand the context, you'll think that first statement about him not entering into the temple of the Lord, you'll think that that's a criticism, but it's not. If you study the life of his father Uzziah, you'll find that Uzziah's life actually sadly ended in disgrace. And the reason is because Uzziah took it upon himself to go into the temple and to try to offer, like a priest, though it was not his place, to try to offer in the temple. And listen to what the Bible says about Uzziah's life. It says in uh, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 15, His name spread far abroad for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God, and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. If you go on and read both in Second Kings fifteen and in Second uh, Chronicles chapter twenty six, you'll find that because of this God smote him with leprosy. And Uzziah lived the rest of his days in a leper's house, and he died in disgrace because he had gone too far, been presumptuous, trespassed upon the commandment of the Lord. But the Bible says about his son Jotham that he didn't make the same mistake that his father had made. It's not to suggest he didn't go in and worship when it was his right and privilege to do so, but it's to say he did not get lifted up, puffed up in pride, and trespass in and try to boss God around and tell God what to do. He learned from what his father had done wrong. I would say this, When he looked at the past and the things that his father had done, there's two things that this verse reminds me of. Number one, he learned to stay humble. He learned that no matter how advanced you get in your position in life, you never get to the place where you have the right to dictate to God. People that are spiritually successful, they learn that spiritual success comes from the will of God being exercised in their life. We very often, I joke about this, half joke about this all the time, that in society today, most people view God as their life coach. That He's just there to sort of advise them a little bit and help them reach their full potential and be as great as they can possibly be. And you couldn't have a more wrong-headed perspective about the dynamic between you and God than to think that is the case. Listen, He's not here to help you be the best that you can be. You're here to exercise His will in this world. He's not your servant, you're his servant. Why did Uzziah's life end in shame? Well, because he got to the place he viewed God as his servant. And Jotham said, you know, I'm never going to get to the place that I view God as my butler. I'm always going to remind myself that no matter how powerful I get, no matter how famous I get, no matter all the glorious things that God does in my life, I'm never going to forget that it all came from God. He's the only reason that any of this is in my life. I will tell you this, God trusts us with what he can trust us with. Uh, Oftentimes you look at people that love the Lord, serve the Lord, and are living for God, who God has blessed with wealth, and it's an indication he can trust them with wealth. Uh, He can't trust me with wealth. I have to accept that. Amen. I had a friend the other day posted these pictures, these ugly shoes, and he said, uh, if I ever won the lottery, I wouldn't say nothing, but there'd be evidence. These crocs covered in all kinds of nonsense and and glitter and chaos and everything. And, you know, the reality is oftentimes those people, because they've yielded that area of their life to God, God blesses them in that respect. And, you know, that's the same truth of anything in our life. God, He trusts us with what He can trust us with. And the moment that you give God reason not to trust you with something He's blessed you with is the moment that God, loving you enough to do it, will take it away from you. All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see this pattern lived out over and over and over again. And Jotham learned this. If I want God to trust me with the kingdom, I've got to let him rule the kingdom. If I want God to trust me with this area, if I want him to trust me with success, I've got to yield my success to him. If I want him to to trust me with wealth, I've got to yield that wealth to him. If I want him to trust me with power, then I have to submit that power to him. And he learned to stay humble. There's another interesting thing it says at the end of this verse. The Bible says this, howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. Now that's an interesting statement. It's really in Second Chronicles the only negative statement made about Jotham's reign. It's expanded a little bit in Second Kings chapter number fifteen, we're told that the high places were not destroyed, and people continued to sacrifice and burn incense in the high places. Now, before you get too critical, of Jotham or any of the kings of Israel. It seems to be a pretty common pattern that God would say about a man, he did righteously, he loved me, he followed me in all his ways but the high places and the groves were not removed. I don't think this is indicative of some compromise on Jotham's part, but rather I think it's an acknowledgement of the limited scope of influence that he had. I mean, he was the king, but at the end of the day, it don't take nothing to go sacrifice in a grove. If he had burned this one down, they would have gone to that batch of trees. If he had cut this one down, they would have gone to that one. And it's showing us that in certain ways, Jotham, though he was the king of the land, he couldn't control the hearts of the people. It was beyond him to do so. And it's interesting because when you look back at Uzziah's life, listen to what it says about Uzziah in Second Kings 15, chapter or verse number 3 and 4. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, save that the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. Now, what is the Holy Ghost communicating to us? Well, I think it's this simple truth. He had learned from his father, you can't stop everybody from doing wickedly, but you can purpose in your heart to serve God in spite of it. Uzziah had lived righteously and been a righteous king, and the thing that was the Achilles heel of his ministry was not other people going into groves, but it was him going into the priesthood. Jotham had looked at it and he said, you know, I learned from my daddy that you can't always control people. You can't always stop them. People are going to do wicked things. But you and you alone control your own actions. I'd say it this way. He learned to stay humble. Number two, he learned to stay focused. To not allow the disobedience of others to derail him, discourage or distract him. But to keep his eyes on the Lord and to serve God. You and I both could make a list as long as our arms Of people who are not in church today. And if you went and asked them, why aren't you in church? They'd say, well, you know, I just didn't agree with something that happened. Or, well, you know, I just got my feelings hurt. Or, well, somebody did this. Or, well, somebody did that. wonder how many people's excuse for not being in church involves some other person that ain't Jesus. I've never heard anybody say, well, I just quit going to church. God failed me. Never heard anyone say that. Uh, Why aren't you in church today? Well, I was going to church, but, you know, God let me down and I quit going. I've never heard anyone say that. Invariably, universally, it's always somebody else did something. Now, here's the question. Why would other people doing wickedly stop you from serving God? Why would, if you're so scandalized by the disobedience of other people, why would you let it produce disobedience in your life? If you're so offended that they would dare do that, then why aren't you offended at your own disobedience? When you allow their disobedience to drive you to a place of disobedience. Jotham, he was a spiritual success because he learned to put his eyes on God and not get his focus on everything else. The the happiest people I know in church are people that keep their eyes on Jesus. And I don't just mean the most faithful. I mean the happiest. You want to go to church and be happy? Get your eyes on the Lord. You want to go to church and, and, and be faithful and stick in and serve the Lord and be productive? Get your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Him. You say, but preach your people sometimes. Yeah, I know people. If people would just quit people and we wouldn't have all these people problems, would we? But I'm going to tell you something. They ain't going to stop. And you can't control everything they do. But you and you alone control what you do. Oftentimes, you know this to be true. Oftentimes, that's merely an excuse for a person's own failure spiritually before the Lord. And I've never known anybody to leave church happy. They always go. There's something bothers them. Something upsets them. And, and sometimes it, they've been genuinely upset or hurt. Sometimes it's just a pitiful, paper-thin excuse to go. But they point to those things. They say, well, this person did this or that person did that. And sometimes the whole purpose in them saying that is to say, pay attention to what they did so you don't notice what I'm doing. They don't want the focus on the fact of their lapse of obedience to the Lord. And sometimes it's used as an escape hatch an a scapegoat away. Not an escape goat, a scapegoat. Sometimes hillbillies talk and you just can't. A scapegoat for their own disobedience. Jotham, man, he didn't play those games. He said, I serve God. If I'm not serving God, it's because I choose not to serve God. Nobody can stop me from serving God. Other people might not serve God. I can't always do something about that. By the way, what he could do, he did do. But what he couldn't do, he didn't get tore up over. He said, I'm just going to keep my eyes on the Lord and keep serving him. I see number one this morning, he prepared his ways in his wisdom. But then notice verse number three, the Bible says this. He built the high gate of the house of the Lord. And on the wall of Ophel, he built much. Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah. And in the forest, he built castles and towers. We could really describe Jotham's life in three words. We see him in verse 2, learning. We see him in verse 5, fighting. But in verses 3 and 4, we see him building. Let's say it this way. He not only prepared himself in the area of wisdom, but he prepared himself in the area of his works. He was a busy king. He was not idle. Instead, he was trying to accomplish things that would help his walk with God and help the kingdom be furthered as well. Notice there's three things that the Bible talks about that he built. The first thing is the Bible says he built the high gate of the house of the Lord. Now, there are several gates in the walls of Jerusalem, and sometimes it can be confusing, sort of puzzling out and compartmentalizing which one did what. But the high gate's pretty easy. The high gate was built by Solomon. And we find that Solomon built the high gate as sort of a covered walkway between the palace and the temple. You'll find if you study in Second Chronicles chapter 23 that that was how they escorted the king from the temple to his palace. And the Bible says about Jotham that he saw this area was in disrepair. And instead of neglecting that, he said, man, there's a lot of things I could be building. By the way, notice he built this before he built anything else. Before he built anything else, he repaired the path to get him to the place of worship. I'd say it this way. What did he build? What were his works? Well, notice number one, he was faithful in his worship. The purpose of this was to give him a way to expediently travel from his house to the church house. We'll just use that language. That's all right. You know enough Bible to know the context. To the church house. And this covered walkway, because Baptists, they just melt when rain hits them. He knew how imperative it was that he have some covered walkway to get there. And he, he was basically saying this. It was there so there'd never be an excuse to not go to the temple. He could never look out and say, well, the wind's blowing too hard. It's going to blow me over. No. He had the high gate to go through. He couldn't look out and say, well, I mean, you wouldn't believe it, but it, it snowed. There's at least a quarter of an inch out there. No, he had a covered walkway. He couldn't say, well, the rain's falling. I don't want my hairdo messed up. No, there was no excuse. And that's the first thing that he saw too. I'm going to tell you the truth. I hope I hope you still love me afterwards. Your spiritual success counts on you stopping making excuses and being faithful in the house of God. And you know, I'm gonna be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm such a nice, non-confrontational person. <clears throat> I just wanted to see if you'd believe that when I said it. I'm not the type of person that's gonna show up at your house and be pounding on your door. Where you been? I'm not that. I, I just, I'm not. If you ain't coming here for the Lord, then I don't want you coming here for me. And we live in a polite enough society, that probably no one around you is going to give you any grief. You know what that means? That means it rests squarely on your shoulders how faithful you are to the house of God. Now, let me say, I understand there are times that we are providentially hindered. There's times that I can't be there. There's times that you can't be there. And I'm aware of that. But I found this. There's confidence and peace in the Lord when those moments come. Can I tell you, can I tell you an interesting thing that I experienced when I started pastoring. You got a little time, right? You ain't going nowhere. I mean, you know, we're just, we'll just stay here and have church afterwards. The, the, I got one amen for that. Can I tell you something interesting that I experienced when I first started? I grew up, my pastor, he didn't know what it was to cancel church for nothing. Like, he just, he didn't cancel church for nothing. It didn't matter what was going on, he didn't cancel church nothing. If it was an ice storm all over Knoxville, he'd get in his Buick and he would skate down Chapman Highway... Till he'd get to church and have church. One day, the associate pastor called him. There uh, there, there the uh, there was snow, blizzard, spitting, whatever, and called him and said, Brother Bob, we're going to have church. He said, have we got power? He said, yeah. He said, have we got heat? He said, yeah. He said, then we're having church. <laughs> That's just how he was. And, and I grew up in that. I came from that. And then, you know, I came. I started pastoring. Now it's my decision. You know, people are calling me. And I found this to be invariably true. The people that live far out never got upset at me for having church when weather was bad. It was always the people that lived in walking distance. You know why? Because the people that live in Granger County don't care about the preacher's opinion when it snows. They can't get to church. And they'd always say, well, preacher, you go ahead and have church. We'll pray for you. But I'd break my neck getting there, so I'm not going to come. And oftentimes, the people that were closest would be the ones that were most upset. And the reason why is because for them, at least, it it smote their heart to say, I can't be there, when oftentimes, they could have been there. Now, you get upset at me for that. I ain't fussing at nobody. But I'm just saying this, that oftentimes in our life, the reason we are so offended when people challenge us on that issue is because somewhere deep in our heart, we know we've been making paper-thin excuses. Say, preacher, but there's times I can't. Well, God will understand that. And let me tell you something, your preacher will understand that. And let me tell you something, even if he does, there ain't much he can do about it. But at the end of the day, it's those moments when we could be there. But we make excuse. Well, I'm a little tired. Well, you know, we had company. Well, you know, this happened. Well, you know, that happened. Listen, you ain't going to answer me. I thank God that you won't. I, you ain't going to stand at the judgment seat of Toby. But you are going to stand before the Lord one of these days. And I will tell you this, your spiritual success and that of your kids and your grandkids is directly dependent upon your level of commitment to the Lord and to his house. I see he was faithful in his worship. That was fun. Some of y'all, all God's people said, move on. Amen. Then the Bible says this. He built the high gate of the house of the Lord and on the wall of Ophel, he built much. There's a lot we don't know about the wall of Ophel. We don't even know who Ophel was. But what most commentators would agree about is that this was a section of the wall that was close to the palace. And that it likely was the most pregnable or weakest portion of the wall. You know what he understood fundamentally in his life and how he set himself up for spiritual success? He had to fix what was at home before he could fix what was anywhere else. He said, hey, listen, there's other areas that need to be built. He said, but as soon as I get this front porch for the house of God done, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to find the closest place to my house because that's where my kids sleep. That's where my wife is. And I'm going to build that portion of the wall. I'm going to fix what's closest to home before I fix anything else. Let me tell you, in your spiritual life, you want to be a spiritual success, and by that I don't mean health, wealth, and riches. I, I Listen, I don't, I, I don't mean beauty and awards, but I mean having a life that's lived for God, a life that leaves a legacy, a life that pleases the Lord and that makes a difference in the world around you. The first place you can start is in your own home. You know why people oftentimes resent and, and label self-righteous Christians? Because oftentimes we have a tendency to want to fix what's broken about everyone else while deliberately ignoring what's broken in our own life. You know, when the Lord told the parable about looking at someone with a splinter in their eye and telling them to cast it out while ignoring the mote in their own eye, it's not an act of compassion to let somebody live with a splinter in their eye. You ever had one? Son, it ain't fun. It's not as though Christ was saying everybody ought to walk around with splinters in their eyes and we ought to all pretend like nothing's wrong. The problem with that interaction was not that the one man pointed out the splinter in the other's eye, but it was the moat, the beam that was in his own eye that he was neglecting. And the truth is often we would have greater standing in our Christian walk and greater authority and greater influence and, and, and force in people's lives If we would first see to the problems in our own home. You want to fix the world. You're getting ready to do it in two days, right? You're going to fix the world. Fix your home. Fix your home. Preacher, we're going to go out. We're going to take it all back. Fix your home. Preacher, you don't understand. We're going to go out. We're going to conquer it all. Fix your home. Work on what's closest to your house. And then I promise you... Listen, if you run out of things to fix, God might let you fix the world. But first start with that which is closest to you. By the way, you know where that starts? In our own personal walk with God. Then beyond that, that of our spouse, that of our kids. Then beyond that, that of our our church, our, our family, our community. But it always begins closest to home. I see I see that he was faithful in his worship. I see he fixed the wall. But notice a third thing. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah. And in forests, he built castles and towers. This is interesting. One of the things that, that uh, Jotham would have been aware of was the impending danger of foreign powers around him. So you know what he did? I don't even know if this is a political statement. He built a wall and he fortified it. If you don't want other nations invading you, a good way to do that is to build a wall and to fortify it. If you want other nations invading you, a good way to do that is to tear down that wall and give everyone free health care. I don't even, I don't even know why things should be controversial anymore. But he learned this. There are enemies that are encroaching in. So here's what he did. He fixed the world around him. He was faithful in worship, but he fortified the world that was around him. He said, I got to realize, man, that there's dangers beyond what I can see. And so I need to now, the time to build a fort is not when the enemy's marching on you. The time to do it is when you have the liberty and time and safety to do it. And he recognized that those crucial crisis moments in our life are not the times to be developing our walk with God. Listen, let God develop you in those seasons, but you develop you in the easier times. God will develop you in the storms, but you be working on you in the sunshine. He recognized that if he wanted his life to be anything that counted, if he wanted a legacy, if, were, if he wanted a kingdom to exist beyond his life, then he had to quit being naive and recognize there were enemies that wanted to destroy the land and take the steps that were appropriate to protect those that he loved the most. I, growing up in a Christian home, I remember things that my parents forbid us from. And I remember thinking that's silly, you know, that's foolish. They're they're, they're making too much out of out of nothing. And forty percent of the time, I was right. But <laughs> at least sixty percent of the time, I I now look back and think to myself, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I had parents that looked beyond the wall and saw enemies approaching. And said, even if he's too short to look over the wall and see him, even if he's going to despise me for it, even if he's going to loathe me for it, I love him too much to just turn him over to the wolves. And they put safeguards and they put barriers. And did sometimes they build the wall a little too high? Maybe. Uh, Did sometimes they build a little too thick? Maybe. But I thank God it was there. I thank God that it was there. I'd a lot rather it be a little too tall or a little too thick than not be there at all. Are you listening to me, parents? I, I, I'm so glad. Even if it was a little too tall, even if it was a little too thick of a wall, I'm glad it was there. The world's philosophy is tear the wall down and hope for the best. But I tell you this, I'd a lot rather err on the side of having built the wall a little too high than not have one there when the enemy comes. He fixed the wall. He fortified the world around them. But notice the final thing, and I'm done this morning with this short, short message. That's how they do it in the media. They just say something and just keep saying it till you believe it. So I'm I'm learning from them. My last point in this phenomenal, best you've ever heard short message is verse 5. The Bible says this, He fought also with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. The children of Ammon gave him the same year A hundred talents of silver, 10,000 measures of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. So much did the children of Amon pay unto him, both the second year and the third. I'd say this, he was prepared in his wisdom, he was prepared in his works. But number three, he was prepared in his wars. You know, we have a tendency to read the Bible and have a very narrow lens contextually for what we're reading. We read it, and whatever enemy they're dealing with is their enemy. And I think that oftentimes we sort of choose these enemies or view them as though they are interchangeable, right? Ah, it's the Edomites. Ah, it's the Philistines. Ah, it's the Amalekites. Ah, it's the Ammonites. But all these were distinct nations with their own history with the children of Israel. His father Uzziah had spent his days mostly fighting the Philistines. Till his later years, he fought the Ammonites. And Jotham, he could have fought anyone. I mean, he could have. It ain't hard to pick fight. It's hard to win one. But you can pick a fight with anybody. He could have fought the Assyrians. He could have fought the Babylonians. He could have fought the Egyptians. He could have fought the Philistines. He could have fought the Edomites. He could have fought the Moabites. He could have fought the Amalekites. He could have fought the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Hittites, the Canaanites. But notice here, notice the enemy that he defeated. He chose to fight the Ammonites, The Ammonites have an interesting history. They are actually, in a very distant sense, blood relatives of the Israelites. They are the product of the ancestral relationship between Lot and his daughter. And so they can trace their heritage all the way back to Abraham, just very similar to the way the Israelites could. And the Ammonites, you'll find, along with the Moabites, were this constant. Both of them were, were distant relations of the Israelites, and, and and both of them were these constant thorns in the side of the children of Israel. They were not necessarily their chief opponent, but they were just always there annoying them all the time. Like Kentucky. Just always just there, you know. And <laughs> Jotham, he said, you know, I can fight anybody, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight the enemy that's of my flesh. That's closest to home. And that is constantly pestering me. You know what that reminds us of? It reminds us of the flesh. He recognized, figuratively speaking, that the success of his kingdom did not rely on defeating every enemy out there. If he could just defeat the flesh, then he would defeat the rest of them in course. You know, in your life and mine, we've got to start viewing the enemy. Our flesh is the enemy. I told him in Sunday school this morning we was, we was teaching out of Ephesians chapter 4 as we have been doing for eight years. And <coughs> Paul talks about that we put off the old man concerning the flesh and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which is after God created in righteousness and in holiness. And Paul essentially says this, that the key to our spiritual development is we have to be renewed in our mind. In other words, he says, you've got to change your way of thinking. You've got to quit depending on self. You've got to quit indulging the flesh. You've got to quit pretending that you're not your own worst enemy. And start recognizing that the greatest threat of failure in your life comes from you trusting self. Yeah. Jotham, man, he was wise because he knew where the danger really was. I see the enemy that he defeated, but then notice number two, the authority that he dealt in. The Bible says this, the children of Ammon gave him the same year a hundred talents of silver and ten thousand measures of wheat and ten thousand of barley. I like that. I think we ought to still do that. Uh, The, the, that's, I, I, I. If we defeat your country, we own your country. We can let you live, but we own your country. If you have natural resources, they are now our natural resources because we defeated you. That's not complicated, right? That's been the way of humanity ever since, you know, Nimrod began to be a mighty hunter in the earth. Uh, and, and I love this. You know what he did? He subjugated. He subjugated his enemy. He said, I'm not going to let him run me. I'm going to run him. I'm not going to work for him. He's going to work for me. I'm gonna master my enemy, and he is now gonna be my servant. You know, the same dynamic exists in your conflict with your flesh. Either it's gonna master you, or you're gonna master it. One of the two. Either you will serve the flesh, or the flesh will serve you. You say, preacher, how could, how could the flesh serve me? Well, I can make these arms do whatever I want them to do. (coughs) I could make these hands steal, or I can make them praise the Lord. I could make these feet carry me to wicked places. Or I could make them carry me to church. Uh, Listen, I I could make this voice breathe out slanderings and and cursing. Or I could make it sing praise to God. And I and I alone have the choice as to what my flesh is going to do. He understood it ain't enough just to beat it back. You've got to subjugate it. You've got to wonder why he did this. I don't know that they had a barley shortage. But he wanted them to have to shamefacedly march that silver and that wheat and that barley in and set it down in front of them and remind them that they were a conquered foe. And that's what we do with our flesh. That's why we embarrass the flesh. It's why we buffet the flesh. That's why you go out and... Uh, uh, listen, you witness try to share the gospel. But part of what it does is it embarrasses the flesh. It marches it out in front of you. It makes it kneel before you. It makes it admit. It makes it roll over and show its belly and admit that it doesn't run you, but that you run it. Part of the reason we go to an altar, funny thing, God's got, God's got ears enough to hear you back there as He does here. Why do we practice this? It embarrasses the flesh. Reminds the flesh, you don't run me. What, what is, what is fasting all about? Right? It's not God that God just hates for us to eat. He's going to make a marriage supper one day but it it embarrasses the flesh. It reminds the flesh, you don't run me. So he understood. I see the authority he dealt him, but finally, and I'm done, I see the consistency he displayed. So much did the children of Ammon pay unto him, both the second year and the third. In other words, he understood that this was an enemy. If you didn't keep it defeated, it wouldn't stay defeated. That the moment he took his boot off their throat... They were going to be right back at his gates. And so he didn't just ask this once. Every year he demanded it because he understood the nature of this dangerous foe. Can I tell you something about the flesh? I wish. I'm with you. I'm with you people. I wish. I, I wish I could just come to the altar and pray and say, Lord, forgive me and cleanse me and I, and I kneel unto you. I, I commit this matter unto you. I trust you with it and get up and that was it. I never had to give another thought to living for God. I wish that was true, but it's not. It's not. I wish we could take a matter, a sin that we're struggling with and battling with and lay it before God and say, God, I give it to you. I'm done with it. And get up and walk away and we'd never, never be tempted again. I wish it was true. But it's not. Truth is, the moment you take your boot off the throat of your flesh, it will rise up to overthrow you again. And so here's what it takes. It don't take super strength. You don't even have to be smart. It takes consistency. And Jotham understood that it was a lot easier to keep an enemy beat than it was to beat him a second time. And your flesh is a lot easier to keep whooped than it is to have to whoop it all over again. I'll tell you why this man was successful. He set his mind. He organized his his ways. He prepared himself to be successful. And you know what? That wasn't in contravention or contradiction to what God wanted. God said, you'll prepare your ways. I will bless that. I will honor that. So in our life, instead of just bouncing around like a pinball and hoping for the best, maybe we'd be better off if we'd prepare our ways before God and set our heart towards Him. I wonder if there's any unprepared ways in your life. If there's not, you know the best thing you can do is get them prepared today. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. If God dealt with you about anything in your life, why don't you come down and meet Him in the altar It's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to happen accidentally or incidentally. It's going to happen because you take that matter, bring it to God, give it to Him, and then purpose in your heart and life to be deliberate and consistent in that action. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.